Tonight we're going to open up in our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. You may be thinking, Pastor Dirk, you just preached like 70 sermons from the Gospel of Mark. So if you're taking us to Mark, certainly this is a passage you've preached on before. The answer is correct. It is. I did preach a number of sermons from Mark, and um, yes, this is sort of a sermon I have preached before. It would have been about three-ish years ago. That's not exactly the same, because when you look back at the work you did as a pastor, you're like, ugh, what was wrong with that? So there's some modifications that happen, but of all the sermons that I preached from the Gospel of Mark, it was the sermon I preached from this story when Jesus walks on water, that I think was my personal favorite. might not have been your favorite, but it was my favorite. And uh, this is actually a sermon that I've taken to other churches and congregations um, throughout the last couple of years in various times when I've, when I've preached in those places as well. Um, I don't know what it was uh, about this passage. Actually, I do know what it was. I was assigned this text when I was in seminary, and I wrote a sermon on it, just a lousy, terrible sermon. Um, And I didn't really understand the passage. Um, And that always frustrated me. And, um, you know, I I, kind of see what's going on, right? But I didn't didn't get the the real crux of it or gist of it or, or, or something about it just left me wanting. And then when I studied it and preached from it a couple years ago, something clicked over the course of the week, and it hit me, you know, that's what that story is about. And um, I think that's probably why this is uh, my favorite passage uh, or sermon that I preached from Mark's gospel. So, uh, with the church picnic and BBS as my excuses, I am opening up to a passage I've preached with you before. Um, Maybe you'll remember it, and maybe many of you won't. You've probably never heard me preach on it before, uh, and that's good too. But uh, Mark 6, 45 to 56 uh, is our text tonight. Mark 6, 45 to 56. Um, actually, we're going to do through 52. Excuse me. Mark 6, 45 through 52. This is what we read. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost And cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened." Thus far, the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is a joy and a delight to preach your word. It is a joy and a delight to 
hear your word preached faithfully. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to do these things tonight, and we do ask that you would give me grace to correctly handle your word of truth and to preach it faithfully for the glory of the risen Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Who exactly is Jesus? That's the question that hangs over at least the first nine chapters of Mark's gospel, although by now, after preaching through Mark's gospel, I would say that that question kind of lingers through every chapter in Mark's gospel. But, but who exactly is Jesus? Now, if you read through the first chapters of Mark, you find out that the demons, they know. They know who Jesus is. But the people, they're struggling to figure it out. And we see this in Mark chapter 3. Uh, that's where Jesus' family thinks He's crazy, and the teachers of the law think that He's in a league with Satan. He's possessed by Beelzebub, they say. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus' own disciples don't know what to think. That's where Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples proceed to ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. And then this question is seen again at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. Jesus returns to His hometown of Nazareth, and what do the people say? They say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't His brothers and sisters here with us? Again, who is this? That's the real question. And then it's seen again in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Mark tells us, what the prevailing opinions of the day were regarding the identity of Jesus. And some people were saying He was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others were saying He's Elijah. And still others were saying He's just a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. And then even at the beginning of our text, here in Mark 6, verse 45, the question is implied. You'll notice that our passage begins on a note of urgency. Mark says, immediately, that's the first word of our text, immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat. There's a note of urgency there. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and it seems that no sooner do His disciples collect those 12 basketfuls of leftovers, and Jesus says, okay, right now, we got to go. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, what's up with this? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but John, I think, does tell us the reason for the urgency. Uh, John tells us, referring to the feeding of the 5,000, that when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force and make Him king, John says, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by Himself. Okay, so according to John, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people got really excited. I don't think that's surprising. And they saw Jesus as as really this, you know, the long-awaited Messiah, but they they didn't have the proper understanding of the Messiah. They, They understood the Messiah to be some great political figure who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression, and, and they were ready to install Jesus as their king then and there. 
Well, that's not who Jesus is, and that's not how things were supposed to go. And so Jesus says to his disciples before things get out of hand, you know, let's get out of here. And immediately he puts his disciples on a boat and he sends them to Bethsaida. And he slips up into the mountain to pray. Now, the fact is, if you would begin reading at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to our text in Mark 6, you will see that Mark has already given us plenty of clues as to whom Jesus is exactly. But in this passage, it's almost like Mark is saying, you know, let me make this very easy for you. Let me spell this out for you as simply as I can. We turn our eyes to the text, and the first thing we notice is that Jesus sees as God sees. Jesus sees as God sees. We read in verse 47, when evening came, the boat... I'm reading... See, I have the NIV in my notes. That's how I did it. (laughs) Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is up on the mountain praying, and the disciples are in a boat on the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and from his place on the mountain, Jesus sees that his disciples are having a miserable time out on the lake. The text says that they were making headway uh, painfully. Uh, the Greek word translated painfully literally means to be, to be tormented, okay? These guys are being tormented as they try to row their boat across the sea. And the reason is because they're rowing into a strong headwind. A couple weeks back, I took my kayak, I threw it into Dyer's Lake. It was pretty breezy. And, uh, you know, I paddled with the wind at my back. Now, the lake's not that big. It wasn't that bad. But uh, I paddled with the, with the wind at my back, and, you know, it was no sweat. And I turned around to come back to the boat launch. And by the time I got back to the boat launch, right, my, my biceps and every step I have was just burning, right? Because when the wind is against you, right, it gets quite painful. Now, that's just out on Little Dyer's Lake. These guys are on the Sea of Galilee, but they're, they're being tormented as they row this boat across the sea because they're rowing into a strong headwind. And the Sea of Galilee is famous for these strong winds that would whip up in the evening. And it seems that one of those winds whipped up here as the disciples were trying to make their way across the sea. But from the mountain, Jesus sees their struggle. He sees their difficulty. He sees their torment. Now, here's the question. How did Jesus see them out on the lake? Did He see them with His eyes, as any one of us might see a boat out in the middle of a lake here in Michigan? Some think that's the case. One commentator says, no supernatural vision is implied here. The little boat would have been clearly visible from the spot where our Lord was praying. Could be. But here's the thing that might be true in the daylight, but this is all taking place in the evening, taking place at night. More than that, John, in his telling of this story, uh, makes it clear that the boat is about three or four miles at this point from where it had pushed off from shore. 
Okay, so the boat is the boat is out there a ways. And although you might be able to see a boat, uh, maybe not even at night, but although you might be able to see a boat out three or four miles in the daylight, you know it's awfully hard to see what is going on in that boat from that distance. And so I don't think, in light of the fact that the boat's three, four miles away and it's night, I don't think that this is your ordinary everyday seeing of a boat out in the middle of a lake. This is a supernatural seeing. This is the seeing of Psalm 139, which says, You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down, you are familiar with all my ways. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Jesus here is seeing as only God sees. We can press that detail even farther. Think for a moment why the disciples are in this situation. They're in this situation because they have been obedient to Jesus. Jesus is the one who made them get into the boat and sail off toward Bethsaida. Serve Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and popular, the prosperity gospel teachers tell us. It's not true. We talked about this this morning. Sometimes serving Jesus means sailing into a strong headwind. Sometimes serving Jesus means, means rowing painfully at the oars. Sometimes serving Jesus means suffering and torment. Yet Psalm 34, 15 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are on who? They are on the righteous. And His ears are attentive to their cry. And again, we see that in our text. The disciples are in this situation because of their obedience to Jesus, because of their righteousness, and Jesus' eyes are on them. He, 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 he sees them, right? He, he sees them making headway painfully. He sees that. His eyes are on them. So Jesus sees as God sees. Notice with me, second, that Jesus walks where God walks. Middle of verse 48, and about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. This is the only illustration I've kept from the previous sermon, because I know you, the illustrations you might remember, right? But you remember I have a shirt that says, Ice Fishermen Walk on Water? That's true. Ice fishermen do walk on water, and there's nothing overly remarkable about that. There is, however, something remarkable about this. <laughs> there is something remarkable about one who can walk on unfrozen water. And to understand the significance, we only need to go back to the Old Testament. Job 9.8 says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Job 38.16, the Lord speaking, Have you, Job, journeyed the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Psalm 77, 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You get it, friends, according to the Old Testament, there is only one 
who makes his way through the mighty waters. There is only one who journeys through the springs of the deep. There is only one who treads on the waves. It's the Lord God Almighty. But Jesus not only walks where God walks, Jesus here also walks how God walks. Look at the end of verse 48. This is the part that always threw me in this story, right? It says, this is about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them, walking on the sea. And then we read this. He meant to pass by them. Huh? Walked all the way out there just to walk by them? Doesn't make any sense, right? Again, the answer is found in the Old Testament. In Exodus 33, Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. And the Lord responds by saying this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then we read in chapter 34, 5 book of Exodus, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord, and he passed by Moses. See the same thing in 1 Kings 19. Here the Lord appears to, the, to Elijah, and these are the instructions the Lord gives to Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by So do you get it? When God revealed himself to his servants in the Old Testament, he did it in such a way so as to pass by them. And we see that same language here in Mark 6. Jesus meant to pass by them. Do you get it? Jesus not only walks where God walks, Jesus also walks how God walks. We notice third that Jesus talks like God talks. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. It is I, Jesus says. My notes got shuffled on me. We're going to do it without the notes then. You turn to, again, uh, Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. And, uh, well, let's just turn back there. I lost my notes, but I don't need my notes. I know what's going on. I preached this sermon like 17 times. Exodus chapter 3. Look at verse uh, 13. Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that phrase is translated with the Greek words, ego a me, I am. We come here again to Mark chapter 6, and it's those same words. It is I, it's the Greek words, ego a me, the same words. Take courage, I am. And the disciples who were familiar with the Septuagint and who were familiar uh, with um, the the, the Greek scriptures, that would have, or the Hebrew scriptures, excuse me, that would have just registered with them right away. There's only one who says, I am, and that's God. Jesus talks like God talks. Finally, Jesus does what God does. I need to get back to my text, Mark chapter 6. Jesus does what God does. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. The wind ceased. I don't have the citation because I can't find that dumb paper. How do I come up here with one paper that I don't have? Oh, may God's power be made perfect in my weakness. I think it's from a psalm. There's one who settles the waves on the sea. There's one who stills the storm. We know who it is. It's God, right? It's God. Here Jesus does the same thing. He does what only God can do. So who is Jesus? That's the question. Well, he sees as God sees. And he walks where and how God walks. And he talks like God talks. And he does what God does. And eventually we're reminded of the old saying, aren't we? If it walks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, and it swims like a duck, and it looks like a duck, for crying out loud, it's a duck. The same is true here. Who is Jesus? Let me make this as simple for you as I can, Mark is saying. Jesus is God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God made man and dwelling among us. This is him. Do you get it? The one who passed by Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. This is him. Sometimes it's said that all religions are basically the same. That's a pretty ignorant thing to say because only Christianity knows a God like this, right? Only Christianity knows a God who became man and dwelt among his people in a time and place in history. Buddhism doesn't know a God like that. Hinduism doesn't know a God like that. Islam doesn't know a God like that. Judaism doesn't know a God like that. Only Christianity knows a God like that. Of course, if that's not enough, not only did our God become man and dwell among us, He died for us. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He was laid in a tomb. And He rose again three days later. All religions are the same. (laughs) Hardly. Hardly. Now, you know what's interesting 
Despite Jesus making his identity painfully obvious here, the disciples, they still don't get it, do they? They still don't get it. And look what we read in verses 51 and 52. He got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The disciples are astounded. As Jesus is climbing into the boat with them, it seems that they had to pick their jaws up off the floor. They're astounded. But Mark is very clear. They shouldn't have been. Mark says the reason they were astounded is because they hadn't understood about the loaves. And that, of course, refers to what just happened in the verses before this. Remember, these guys here, they're like, maybe, maybe 12 hours removed from watching Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Literally, they've just watched Jesus bend the material universe, but they didn't get it. They failed to see beyond the miracle to the one who performed it. Had they looked beyond the miracle to the miracle worker, they might have seen and realized that Jesus is the very God who created heaven and earth and all that is out of nothing. And they would have realized that there is nothing that is impossible with Him. But they didn't get it. And so when Jesus comes walking to them on water, well, calling Him a ghost seems like the best option. And when they find out it's Jesus, they're amazed as if this is something altogether new and unexpected and different. And then Mark tells us the reason why their hearts were hardened. And certainly we learn here, don't we? Certainly we learn that our fundamental need as sinners is not for God to prove Himself to us. It's for God to work in our hearts. As sinners, our hearts are such that unless God works in them, unless God opens them to the truth of Jesus Christ, the Lord Himself can walk to us on the water and we won't believe in Him. Our hearts are such that unless God works in them, our Lord Himself can bend the material universe in such a way so as to see to us to feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. We can watch it all, and we won't believe in Him. Our hearts are such that unless God works in them, we can witness Him call a dead girl to life, make the lame walk, cause demons to flee, tell the storm to be silent, heal the sick with a simple touch, and we still won't believe in Him. You know, the disciples, they would get it. They would Slowly but surely, they would get it. Matthew even indicates that perhaps they begin to get it here after Jesus climbed into the boat and things settled down. But listen to what Jesus says about the disciples finally getting it. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Peter, Jesus says, Peter, you didn't, you didn't figure that out on your own. God gave you this insight. God revealed to you this truth. God opened your heart to the truth of who I am. How desperate we are for God to work in us. Do you know this about yourself? Have you confessed to God your spiritual inability? Have you asked God to to open your closed heart, to soften your hard heart? Have you asked God to give you the gifts of faith and repentance? He has to give you those gifts. Those things have to come from Him. Our hearts are such that the Son of God can literally walk to us on the water and we will be just dumbfounded and flabbergasted and have no idea who He is. We need God to show us Christ. Have you asked God to give faith to your children, to your grandchildren? They they too are just as desperate as you and I for God to work in them. They too need to be converted and born again. I mean, our children can grow up and we can reason with them all we want about why the Bible is true and why they should trust Christ and we can have them read every apologetic book that was ever written, and we can have them sit in church week after week after week, but unless God works in their hearts, they won't get it. They won't get it. So pray for yourself, but even more, pray for your loved ones, pray for your children. We need God to work in us and to show us, to reveal to us Jesus. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we give you thanks and praise this morning or this evening for Jesus, the God man. We give you thanks and praise for stories like the one we read tonight, which uh, leave us with no other option other than to say that Jesus is God. What a wonder it is, Lord, that you became man and dwelt among us, and even more, that you died for us on the cross. Help us to love you. Help us to serve you. Help us to understand daily uh, who you are and to trust you. And Father, we pray for those in our lives, and especially maybe our children and grandchildren tonight, Father, and it is our prayer that you would work in their hearts as well, and that you would give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again, My Jesus, I Love Thee. That's number 364. In the blue book, Jesus, I love thee, 364, and we'll sing verses, uh, we'll do verses 1, 2, and 4, 1, 2, and 4 together of my Jesus, I love thee. Let's stand.
departing blessing, dear friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.